Hello, I'm Katherine Pierce. And I'm Brooke Hayes. We're graduate students at the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. On this podcast, we explore the stories of people working toward the change they want to see in the world through conversations about how they got from hope to here. Our aim is to provide an antidote to the doom and gloom narrative that dominates mainstream media by exploring these stories, and by shining a light on the ways that fellow researchers are taking action and inspiring hope in others. On this week's episode, we talk to Lauren Burton, an environmental studies PhD student whose research focuses on Indigenous coastal stewardship in BC. Here's Lauren. If you are paying attention, um, then you will see a lot of these inspirational, very small um, projects, but it's it's easy to miss those. Um, the news likes to show the big you know, planetary doom. But first, Brooke and I discuss Bright Spots research. Okay, well, it's week three. This is our third episode. And uh, where will we start today? Yeah, so um, one of the goals of the podcast, like we've talked about, is to provide um, a counter to the sort of doom and gloom um, narrative of sort of the constant stream of negative environmental news. And so we thought that something that might be of interest to our listeners is to start some of these episodes with um, just something, maybe something interesting that we've learned this week or sharing some positive stories. And so we thought we would kick off this week's episode that way. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, So I think there's a really interesting topic that we've chosen to introduce to our audience today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the ways that we um, have been trying to do this on the podcast, sort of countering that negative narrative is with the interviews that where we're sharing stories of researchers working towards positive change, but um, sort of another, another um, thing that we have learned about is research into bright spots. Mm-hmm. Um, so bright spots refer to solutions-based research that is focusing on positive outliers or places mm-hmm. where things are going better than we might expect. And so we thought it would be interesting to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. This idea of bright spots was one that really struck me uh, as, as novel. There's this feeling that things are getting worse all the time. And I was really surprised to see research around hope and the environment that describes this concept of bright spots. And, you know, an example of this that was shared that I think people might be interested in was uh, produced by an Australian social scientist and coral reef researcher named Joshua Sinner. Sinner with a C. And (laughs) (laughs) he is researching, what's interesting is he's looking at a very vast scale. So unlike many of our people that we've interviewed so far that are looking at very small scale solutions, he's actually looking across massive landscapes. So looking across 2,500 different reef systems around the world. And he was curious to know, you know, are there areas that are actually recovering faster than expected? And what's interesting is that he found 25 of these places that are doing much better than expected, like two standard deviations out from the normal sort of expected um, recovery rates based on 
know, socioeconomic and environmental conditions. So it was interesting because he went out to go and see like what what were the conditions that were leading to this bright spot, this like actually really positive example of environmental recovery in these coral reefs. And what I found super interesting was that it was actually areas that were being, you know, very intentionally managed with local communities that seemed to be recovering the fastest. So and, and faster than normal. So this is this means, you know, areas that are highly dependent on the on the fisheries and these coral reefs who have active local management of those systems. Uh, we're doing much better, in fact, than some like pristine, very remote island reef systems. So that, that really gives me hope that humans can be a, a positive force to improve the conditions of, of these coral reefs as an example. Um, so I think there's some really interesting research to be done into when things are going right, what are the factors that are, are helping things recover faster? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a really interesting example. And I think that's also an important thing to make note of is that these types of stories are not just sort of feel good stories, mm-hmm. but that their focus is on looking at what is going right and what is working so that maybe those solutions can be identified and then be applied elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, an example, you know, just the example I gave, the recommendation is maybe we should be looking at fisheries governance, you know, as as a key area for policy making when it comes to improving the the rate of recovery. So that might not have come out from looking at where things have gone wrong, like just looking at the environmental factors for bleaching of corals. So I think it is really important to ask, you know, what's going right in these areas where things are going well. Have mm-hmm. you have you come across any bright spots when you've been looking out across, you know, the areas of research that you're interested in? Yeah. Um I think like so my area of interest that I'm working on for my thesis is looking at local governments. Um, and how they respond to climate change in terms of mitigation and adaptation. So sort of broad climate action. Um, And so in doing this research, one of the things that really inspired me was looking at the cities that are really leading the way. And um, in a way like that is something, you know, a lot of the time we see really negative news stories about a lot of environmental issues, but I think there's a pretty good, like there's pretty good coverage in the news of story, like stories about cities that are doing a lot. There's a lot of stories about um, cities leading the way. We hear about, you know, Copenhagen and mm. Amsterdam and a lot of these mm-hmm. European cities. Mm-hmm. For example, um, Copenhagen has a goal to be the first zero carbon capital in the world by 2025, mm. which is like a really soon timeline compared to a lot Four of places. Years. Yeah. And they're making really, they're actually making really good progress too. So a lot of places set ambitious targets, but they're not necessarily very close to achieving and they've made really good progress. But there's also examples closer to home as well. Like we see Vancouver has really done a lot of work and has really ambitious um, climate goals. And they have sort of the green Vancouver strategy. And then here on the island, Victoria and Saanich have really ambitious climate plans as well. Um, so I think that a lot can be learned from looking at what is working in some places and thinking about how that could work in other places that maybe aren't so far along. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really feel like we're going to find a lot of bright spots along the way. And it's a concept that's really stuck with me as I'm, I'm looking out into even the field of research that I'm, I'm interested in, in terms of rebuilding agricultural ecosystems. And there are plenty of examples of fantastically recovered and biodiverse systems that, that makes me really think differently about how I want to structure my research 
to identify what's working well in these places where there's great soil quality and great farmer mental health and, and healthy relationships with those communities. So I think it is like the ability to kind of shift our perspective into what's working well is a really useful place to, to set our, our intention as we think about doing research and, and even just looking at how news is being reported. So yeah, this is a really interesting topic and probably worthy, worthy of further discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Like we talked about last week, sort of the orientation towards problem identification in research and in our classrooms. And I feel like that really relates to what we're talking about now with sort of focusing, yeah, focusing on where things are going well. And it's just a really different approach to take. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it sort of sets a mindset of assuming that there is a solution. Mm -hmm. And that actually is a really uh, maybe it's not this. It's not usually the starting point when we're looking at an issue. We often say, "What's the problem?" Mm-hmm. and then we sort of unpack it from there, and then think about solutions. But if we if we frame the discussion with an assumption at the outset that a solution is possible, then when we're thinking about challenges, it's within the context of solutions rather than the other way around. It sort of flips things around a little bit, and I find that to be really useful. And it's also really hopeful because it can be a little bit depressing to identify all these big problems <laughs> yeah. and then go like, well, how do we fix it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort of left hanging in the strings. And usually that's as, as soon as they get to that point in the conversation, usually it's time to wrap up for the day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I'm really grateful for the chance to, to talk about some of the solutions as a starting point. So yeah, shall we, shall we get to our, our uh, interview of the day? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Okay, awesome. See you there. See ya. Lauren Burton is a first-year environmental studies PhD student in the Marine Ethnoecology Research Lab at the University of Victoria. Lauren received her degree in Human Dimensions of Natural Resources at Colorado State University. Since then, she has worked in a variety of fields, including environmental education, ecotourism, agroforestry, international development, community conservation, and academic advising. Lauren's doctoral research focuses on Indigenous coastal stewardship across multiple levels of governance on the northern coast of British Columbia, using a holistic transdisciplinary lens to explore the myriad of ways that humans and nature interact. Lauren is thrilled to return to the Salish Sea for her studies, after two decades away, and grateful to be living as a guest on Wasanich and Lekwungen territory. All right, Lauren, it's just so nice to have you here today for our From Hope to Hear podcast. I'm really happy that you've taken some time to have a conversation with us today. Thanks, yeah, it's good to be here. So to kick us off, um, the first thing that we wanted to ask you about is your vision for a hopeful future. So I know it can be like maybe a bit of a tricky question, but just sort of thinking forward, you know, maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years into the future, what does the world look like to you? What would what would be um, the future that you would want to see? I think my vision is very uh, local, um, as Catherine, you probably can relate <laughs> with your with your work. Um, so I'm my my vision is is in more um, 
local food networks, um, community organizations, um, things like that, uh, moving cities kind of to, to smaller hubs rather than the suburb, um, the not very well connected transit systems kind of making smaller, more local hubs. Um, and that scale is a lot easier than to, to create sustainability within. So that's, um, that's my vision is more from the, the ground up um, all over the world. And we're starting to see that, I think. Um, that's making me hopeful, for sure. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for sharing that. So one of the questions we have for you is, you know, it's a huge, big, wide world of interesting things out there. And you chose a very specific area of focus for your PhD work. And I'm just wondering, you know, what was the path that brought you here? Why did you choose this specific area of focus for your research? Yes, um, my path has been long and windy. Uh, I, I love it, but that's not, that's not the path that most people take. Um, and I've just, in my background, had experience with uh, a lot of organizations, projects that didn't do a good job with monitoring and evaluation. These aren't necessarily things that I worked with, but just other projects that I've seen or or just even news that I've seen where uh, all these great ideas, um, you know, the, an organization or government agency will just come and throw a lot of money at a problem and then not really follow through. Um, so my interest really comes in with the accountability angle of, of making sure that communities are really benefiting from these projects and that they're able to speak up for themselves if they are not benefiting um, or you know worse. Um, and so that really brings me to, to this project now with um, assessing human well-being or social impacts of um, either marine protected areas or um, you know, hopefully positive benefits <laughs> from a marine protected area or um, negative impacts of industrial development. So just as a quick follow-up, I'm curious to know, uh, you know, marine protected environments is a really specific and complicated area to kind of assess accountability. You know, what drew you to the, to the marine environment as an area that you were really interested in? Yeah, I've always loved the ocean and particularly uh, marine animals <laughs> uh, <laughs> since I was a, a kid um, just really, you know, was a nerd about dolphins. Um, and I used to live in Washington State near, you know, the Salish Sea and, and got to become attached to the southern resident killer whales there and then moved to Colorado with my family and went to school there kind of didn't have the opportunity to to study or really interact with the marine environment from that landlocked state. Um, so I kind of got drawn towards 
agroforestry, um, ended up doing some development work, uh, mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, which was great. I loved it, but I'm trying to get back to the, the marine ecosystem. And I just really love this, this area, uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, the temperate kelp forest, um, you know, very <laughs> non-tropical <laughs> uh, ecosystem. And um, I'm excited to work here. Yeah, I, I kind of lost the no, no, it's great. I mean, there. you kind of filled out the long and winding road. We learned <laughs> Washington, Colorado, Sub-Saharan Africa. Ah, Victoria. <laughs> That's yes. the obvious choice. <laughs> um, yes, I've been trying to get back up here for a while now. Um, and and there's a lot of great work being done in BC. I think that's the other thing I was, the, the angle I was going for. Um, yeah, I'm very hopeful um, with Catherine, you, you are paying a lot of attention to this, this mayor's, what's it called? The covenant, covenant of mayors? Oh yeah, 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 the covenant yeah. of mayors, the global, uh, global covenant of mayors. Yeah, and I think, cause like all of that large scale, you know, Paris agreement commitments is like, that's great, but how are you gonna actually accomplish that? And it is at this, this mayor scale. And I had the opportunity to work with a local government in the Philippines and there were pros and cons to that certainly. Um, but for the first time, I actually thought like, this is a, this is an environment where like things can get done. And that was very inspiring. And unfortunately I was evacuated because of COVID-19 um, and didn't get to finish up my, my time there. But um, yeah, I'm thinking now maybe local government is an area for me, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how my, my plans change as I continue on in research. So what made you feel like you could make things happen there? Um, well, that was a particular uh, um, municipality that was um, very progressive and interested in um, trying new things. And, and there was some, I, I mean, it's like culturally, I don't really uh, agree with, but as a, a foreigner, you know, the, there was a lot of uh, looking to me as like having new solutions. And I'm like, I don't, you know, live here. I don't know. Um, but they were perceptive to, um, to, to just, to trying new things. And, and, um, part of that was that there was this like competition of being the best municipality and they wanted to win it. So, <laughs> uh, so some, uh, quite a bit of that was performative, but, um, there was, it was a small, they were funded enough. Like it was at a scale that um, things could really happen. They could invest in, in some small projects. Um, I don't know, towards the end of my time, I realized that a lot of that was kind of just talk. Um, once I started talking to the community a little bit more and this is what I'm saying about the accountability is that when people are governments or NGOs or whoever are sending out their own um, annual reports and like, look at these accomplishments. I planted this many trees and, and whatever. Um, 
then when you actually talk to the community, they're like, yeah, they came one time and then they never came back. Mm. Um, that's not really what we wanted. That's not what helped us. Um, and especially in, in international development, there's a lot of trainings, but that doesn't help people buy equipment. That doesn't help people like connect to a market to sell their products. Um, nobody, like I've talked to, to community members who say, like no one really asked us what we wanted. <laughs> and so there's no way for donors or anyone who would fund the projects to really hear that when it's all being self-reported by that organization. So that's really where my interest is in helping create awareness that we should look harder at whether these programs are accomplishing what they promise, but then also giving some kind of avenue for the community to speak up for themselves, which in international context is incredibly difficult. You know, they wouldn't even, you know, there's language problems. They have, they don't know what, you know, news organization to try to connect to, to, to speak up for themselves um, in an American, you know, to, to an American audience who's funding this stuff. But yet that's kind of what motivates me. Yeah, Lauren, we wanted to um, ask if you can tell us a little bit more about your work and your project. Um, you sort of touched on it a little bit, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? About yes. what you're working on with your PhD project? Yes. I know it's early stages, but <laughs> to give a general. So. Hard, hard to say now, but um, what drew me to this area also was that um, in other areas that I've worked, there's there's more of this top-down approach and I don't hear from communities as much. And it, it's been very inspiring that the First Nations working on marine conservation um, along BC's coast have been very vocal. They've been very well connected um, to each other. They're, they're forming networks, um, collaboratives, um, yeah, so I've just been very inspired by by the work that they're doing and um, and how they're they're working with government agencies, but then also kind of opposed to government agencies in developing these marine uh, partnerships and conservation projects. Uh, and so, what I'm really interested in looking at is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of conversation there about um, human well-being being you know, one of the three, four pillars of, of, of their goals, but how is that being monitored and assessed? Um, and, you know, it's an early stage of my project, so I don't really know yet, but uh, there's a lot of interest, it seems, in, in figuring out a way to do that that is, uh, that is appropriate for the culture of, of these First Nations communities. Um, so we'll see how that develops <laughs> moving forward. Um, but there's also just a lot of interest in, um, in ramping up marine uh, protected areas and conservation in this area. And so it's important to make sure that that is done in a way that doesn't trample anybody's rights um, and is done in true collaboration 
maybe just to follow up on that, um, you mentioned around, particularly around the accountability piece and sort of what what is the purpose of these marine protected areas in terms of how it's evaluated. And I, I, I can't help but think that the evaluation of the success of these areas has been dictated by people who created the areas often in these really embedded power structures. So it really feels to me like you're, you're trying to, to shift the nature of the conversation to a more local community level in terms of what that uh, value that should be measured and evaluated is. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about why, why that's important to you and, and what that's looked like in, in sort of the current management frameworks that we see today. Yeah, um, and that's what drew me to this project again, because I do see more um, attention to that. The local, it is more community and First Nations led, um, at least the, some of the, the projects that I'm hoping to partner with. Um, than in other parts of the world where there's really more of this fortress conservation that will establish a protected area and push everybody out and then measure um, only species biodiversity. Um, and then occasionally will measure community well-being or, or human um, benefit in purely economic terms. Um, so people employed by fisheries, um, you know, income, uh, which is important. That's definitely a factor in, in well-being, but that's not the only factor. And so what comes up in this uh, context a lot is cultural continuity, language, um, teaching the, the new generation of, of their traditional harvest practices and um, just maintaining that connection to, in this case, the water. Um, and there's not really a way to measure that, but it is one of the most important things, I think. It keeps coming up and uh, just no one really knows where to go. And I've seen a lot of projects that talk a lot about monitoring and evaluation and, and talk a lot about benefit to the community. And then that's the thing that gets dropped when the budget runs out. So creating a, a protocol, I guess, to, to build that into the project. Um, it is something that has been uh, discussed as a priority, but no one really knows how to go about it. It's a lot easier to take existing census data or um, fisheries catch and, and report on it that way. Yeah, changing the way we define success can be a complicated conversation. <laughs> so then I guess that really that kind of leads into our next question around, you know, what gives you hope? Like, what is the, the solution that, that you think this work will help inform? And, and what makes you uh, feel like this is a, an area worthy of, of taking action? Yeah, I mean, this is how I answered that first question really is that I, I'm hopeful in seeing a lot of, of ground up uh, approaches to conservation. I'm, I'm hearing a lot more lately in the importance of working with uh, local communities, First Nations, you know, just all kinds of stakeholders and collaborative governance. 
um, which is something that people say, maybe not always something that they do or that they do well, but at least we're talking about it more, I think, in a way that recognizes that that's important. Um, so I am very hopeful about that. And just worldwide, there's, there's this increased recognition of involving uh, indigenous people and women in, in governance, uh, conservation projects. And, and that's, again, <laughs> moving slower perhaps than, <laughs> uh, than necessary, but I, it, we, are, we are recognizing that at a level that I haven't you know, seen before, so. That's great, thank you. So thank you so much for talking to us about your project and your work. And I want to sort of zoom out a little bit again. And just when we think about some of those sort of big environmental problems in the world, you know, I find like when we think about the global scale of the challenges that we face, it can be really overwhelming. And I think for people that work in this field, even more so, there's actually you know, there's even evidence that environmental researchers can be at a heightened sort of risk of experiencing stress and anxiety with that like deeper connection to the environment, <laughs> being in it all the time. And so I wanna ask you, how do you take care of yourself and how do you kind of find that balance? Not very well. <laughs> um, yeah, I try to, to read hopeful news and, and to stay optimistic, but there is definitely times that it becomes overwhelming and just incredibly frustrating. Um, I think for me, the, the, the issue is, is just taking things at the smaller scale. Um, I get very dejected when I think about these global targets that we've, you know, countries have pledged, but then repeatedly fail to meet. Um, that's just a lot of prolonged meetings and talking and, and um, you know, lip service. But then I see these smaller projects that, that are accomplishing things at, at a local scale. And that's, um, that's a way to kind of process, <laughs> uh, you know, hope. <laughs> Uh, just to see that that things are kind of across the world moving in this direction at these uh, community scales, um, because I can't I can't really wrap my head around climate change as a as a threat or you know as how do we combat that? It's just so big, but to to piece out small pieces of legislation, maybe that's not really um, my favorite, but <laughs> uh, just small, smaller, more specific behaviors, um, projects to like really grasp to help comprehend that, that problem. Yeah, I think that's part of what makes it so challenging is it it's like, it's such a big scale and it's hard. It is hard to wrap our minds around it and it quickly becomes overwhelming. So I, I love what you said about sort of just focusing in on like the small local successes and positive trends that are happening. Yeah, and there are a lot of them. 
Um, I didn't come prepared with a nice list <laughs> of projects that inspire me, but I, you know, like you, if you are paying attention, um, then you will see a lot of these inspirational, very small um, projects, but it's, it's easy to miss those. Um, the news likes to show the big, you know, planetary doom and <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's exactly why we started this conversation, right? To Yeah, I... <laughs> to show, you know, that that there are people working towards these positive changes that we want to see in the world and and I'm I'm really really grateful that you've been able to share about this idea of more more community-based accountability and monitoring and evaluation of success based on a kind of a different scale. I think that's a really important part of the conversation. So um, I guess one of the questions we have for you then is, you know, if people were curious to learn more about about you and your work and, and where this is going, you mentioned it's early days, so things will evolve over time. Where can people go to find out more about what you're doing and, and where the, how this is evolving? Yeah, I am um, hopefully going to create a website in the future once I have more um, to share. But for now, I have a new Twitter account and um, Instagram, which I'm not really sharing um, conservation stuff on there. That's more personal. But um, both of those are at LRNBRTN if anybody is interested in getting in touch with me there. Um, and then hopefully <laughs> I will share <laughs> some more um at a future time that's perfect thank you thanks lauren we'll make sure to put that in the show notes so everybody can find you <laughs> and uh we're just going to end with some rapid fire questions if you're game um <laughs> these are these are just quick quick questions um if you really get stuck feel free to just say you know pass on it but um it's kind of a fun way to end if you're up for it. Yeah, okay. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so it's sort of a fill in the blank style. And our first question is, what's your sign? Like my astrological sign? That's right. Libra. Nice, balance. <laughs> Me too. Apparently. <laughs> All right, um, what book is on your bedside table? Um, I am reading, it's a coffee table book, so it's kind of a weird book to read, but I have the um, Spirits of the Coast, which is about orcas Ooh. in art and culture here in the Salem Sea. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my favorite place in nature is? Pass. I can't get more specific. <laughs> this like whole Pacific Northwest area. It's perfect. Um, yeah. Maybe the Olympic National Park, the coast um, in the Olympics. Okay. What's the first word that comes to mind when you think of the environment? Trees. <laughs> That's so unimaginative and also not related to my current work. 
I have expected you to say kelp. <laughs> I think I really like this. Um, I'm, I, I didn't touch on this in, in, in our conversation just now, but you both obviously know. Um, I'm very drawn to kelp, and I think it's because of the forest. It's a, you know, a forest in the water that's like the, the nexus of my past and future. Agroforestry underwater. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. I never thought about it like yeah. that. I it love that. It took me a while to realize that as well. I'm like, oh, it's because it's an underwater forest. That's why I'm interested. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Okay, next question. Um, the world needs more hope. All right. When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh my gosh. So glad you asked this question because I was hoping this would come up. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have a way to uh, fit this into one of your other questions. Uh, when I was little, I wanted to be a marine biologist in the morning and an artist in the afternoon. And everybody made fun of me. And now I'm trying to like re-emerge. <laughs> I went off on a tangent. I went away from the marine environment. I stopped practicing art. And uh, now I'm like trying to mix these things together by studying not marine biology, but marine social science. And then to, to find creative ways of sharing that information um, with the general public and through various media art, photography, storytelling, a podcast, video, hopefully sometime. Um, so, so glad you asked me that. Oh my God. I just need to do a very quick tangent for those people who have not seen her artwork. Lauren, your artwork is some of the most beautiful I have seen depicting these marine environments. And I just feel like there's so much power in, in that ability to translate these important concepts into something that is instantly sort of visually comprehensible and and there's I, I why can't everyone who's a marine biologist also be an artist I think that's just so brilliant um it's probably just because it wasn't something people had thought of before but well done pioneer thank you um, and I'm posting my art which I don't think is as good as you have just described but, um that's, it really is though it really is <laughs> thank you um, yeah, I'm trying to get more in the habit of, of drawing regularly and practicing different styles and medium. And that's um, on my Instagram, um, which is just art and photography. Yeah. Um, but I recently gave um, a guest lecture about fire, again, not marine, um, where I drew all of my slides. Um, and that was uh, very time intensive, but it was also an interesting way. I hope that the students um, you know, were able to connect to the material better. There were things that I wanted to say that I couldn't find existing images for is kind of how I went down and just drew them myself. Um, but yeah, I was very proud of that work and, and I'm hoping to explore that kind of as a, as a, we're all sick of PowerPoints, you know? And so this was still a PowerPoint, but it was a PowerPoint with all of my own hand-drawn images on it um which just made it a little bit more personal and interesting I think oh yeah I am like 
tuning in with great curiosity to where your work goes in terms of how you communicate it because I think there's so much power in that mechanism and yeah it's so beautiful to look at your art so I will be definitely following you on Instagram <laughs> okay uh next question uh do you listen to podcasts and if so what is your favorite podcast at the moment Yes, um, I've discovered quite a few since starting um, this PhD, and a lot of them are very local. Uh, so Future Ecologies um, is one I hadn't heard of before. Um, and then there's a more academic podcast called In Common that I'm catching up with. Um, and then I listen to Hakai Magazine audio version. Uh, when I don't want to read text. <laughs> so it's nice that some of their longer stories are are read um, out loud. So those are the ones I'm mostly focused on. I kind of put everything else that I used to listen to on the back burner for now. Thank you. All right, last question. If you were an animal, what animal would you be? A bird, some kind of bird, I'm sure. I don't know what kind. A seabird, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say not a marine animal. <laughs> I was thinking you might say dolphin or something because you were talking yeah. about that earlier. Yeah, I don't, well, because I still, I don't think I could let go of the forest, you know? Mm. I like, I want both. All right. Well, before we let you go, we just wanted to say thank you and see if there is anything else before you go that you'd like our audience to know. Yeah, I just want to um, kind of go back to my earlier point about um, merging science and art. And, and I just think I want, I see this more um, lately that there is encouragement to to kind of do both and explore both and explore different ways of communicating. Um, but I felt as a, as a kid that I was kind of discouraged from, from doing that. And I just think that it's important to, to keep an open mind and, and to think about how you can pursue both or all or multiple interests that you have. And you don't have to just pick one lane that's kind of the normal track um, I felt like marine biology was very specific and I was, um, I wanted to study whales and dolphins because, you know, <laughs> charismatic megafauna, who doesn't love them? Um, and I remember someone telling me that, you know, only the top people get to study whales and that, you know, I was going to end up studying plankton and, I <laughs> I just, I feel like that's not the right thing to, I don't know if anyone actually said this to me or if I just interpreted something this way, um, but that's not the right message. I, if you end up studying, you know, some very specific smaller fish, then that's because you at some point thought that that was the coolest thing and that's what you wanted to study. And I've heard people talk about uh, mice or mites or I don't know those are the two nematodes <laughs> yeah just like <laughs> with such enthusiasm and plankton is awesome like I could 
have gone on that track and just really loved that. And now I could find a way to, to study you know, social dimensions of, of whales and I'm choosing to not go in that direction for a reason. So I think just, yeah, keep an open mind. If, if someone tells you that you can't do both of your passions then that just lacks imagination. Yeah, that's perfect. That's such an important message for our youth to hear because so I, I know as a youth myself, like the, I was overwhelmed by options and choice, this feeling that there were just too many topics and not enough time. And how could I possibly decide on a single path? So it's, I think, really important to follow that part of you that feels that enthusiasm and joy because that really is a signal. This is an area that that can be inspirational. I also, I have so much to say about youth. I used to work in um, various quasi-educational <laughs> jobs. Um, but I think we don't know what is out there at the age that we are having to decide like what major to choose. I didn't know that human dimensions of natural resources was like a thing. I didn't know that anthropology was a field until like I was a junior in college. And then I was like, this is the coolest. This is the thing that I've always been interested in. I didn't know there was, you know, a word for it. And that's embarrassingly late in my <laughs> in my college career to to realize that that was um a field, a class I could take, but uh, I just was, you know, there's biology and there's chemistry and then there's history and there's like this very narrow list of subjects that you're exposed to. And I think that that's changing. Um, I think they're teaching anthropology in high school now um, as an elective, if you know to take it. Um, but yeah, just kind of broadening that, entering entering university with an open mind, um, you're gonna change your major probably, I did um, twice, <laughs> I think. Um, but it's taking that, that time in the beginning to really explore what is out there and then how you can, can merge your interests to create a real special niche for yourself. I feel like you really like hit the nail on the head <laughs> like when you were describing how when you're so young, you don't really know what all the options are that are out there. And so being asked to choose this path that's supposed to be your path that you're going to follow for life. Like, first of all, there might be many different paths, but also like, yeah, it just really resonates with me. I, there were so many jobs that I didn't know existed and possible options out there that you don't know about when you're a teenager or when you're entering school and you're choosing your major. And I think it's common for people to shift if they're allowed to explore and and feel the freedom to to be able to do that but then yeah like you you know you, like you were talking about sometimes people are kind of pushed down a certain mm -hmm. a certain path yeah and I think this is especially true in our field um because most people coming into environmental social science are coming in from natural science uh, because they didn't know that this was a thing <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh yeah, I think I think you hear a lot more about interdisciplinarity um, 
and like finding your path in this particular subfield um, more than you do in some others. All right, well, that sort of takes us to the end. I guess we just get to say thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Lauren. It was so great to have you. And so interesting to hear more about what you're working on. Yeah, it's, um, it's a continuing <laughs> uh, development, so stay tuned. Yeah, we will with great interest. And maybe when we get further along, we'll have you back and, and catch up and see how things are going. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for taking the time and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and extra special thanks to our guest, Lauren. And if you want to learn more about Lauren's work, you can find links to all of the resources she shared in the show notes today. Also, if you'd like to connect and share feedback about this episode or anything else you've heard on this podcast, you can reach us at our email, hope to hear at gmail.com, which is also linked in the show notes. Next week, we'll be speaking to Alyn Gertz about her work with iNaturalist. We hope you can join us. And thanks again, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.